Please uh, join me in turning to Acts chapter 25. By the way, that's been a while since we've sung that hymn, but uh, what a great reminder of suffering preceding glory. Um, The the difficulty now, uh, the joy uh, full to come. Um, A great uh, hymn about uh, the way our Savior walked and the way we walk after him as well. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to his word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to see the wisdom, to see the truth, to see the beauty of what you have in store for your people. Father, may this narrative account of our history be useful as we move forward in our mission to declare the gospel of the grace of God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 15, Paul is getting ready to wrap up his letter to the church that he's never been to, but he's longing to get to. And we're seeing here in Acts how he ends up getting to Rome. Um, He says this, and it's a a verse we've heard before, but uh, it's a verse I think we need to start off with today. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Paul, of course, is talking about the Hebrew scriptures, but the same thing applies to the completed canon, the New Testament scriptures as well. Now, why would Paul have to write about endurance and encouragement? Could it be that there were people then ready to give up, ready to call it quits, ready to throw it in the, t- throw in the towel, ready to walk away. Could that be why he spoke of endurance and encouragement? How about today? Are there any among us ready to give up, to call it quits, to throw in the towel, to walk away? A wise friend of mine who's now with the Lord used to remind me that you only endure once you get to the point of wanting to quit. Have you gotten to the point of wanting to quit? I think in the Christian life, there are moments when all of us ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, if you've ever been tempted to throw in the towel, to call it quits, to walk away, to give up, I've got some good news for you this morning. Because at the center of today's narrative account is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the center of gravity for the Christian's hope and it's fuel for our endurance and encouragement on the long and winding and often difficult journey home. Before we move forward in Acts 25, let's look back last week, the first 12 verses, asking for and doing favors. Paul is before the Roman governor of Judea. 
The Jews, we saw, ask for a favor. The Roman governor, he wants to do a favor. Asking for favors, doing favors, it's the way the world works, isn't it? It's the way the world worked in the first century. It's certainly the way the world works now. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do this, I'll do that. But it's not how God works, is it? God doesn't do favors. We don't do favors for God, but he shows favor. He shows favor to those who trust in Jesus. We saw, in addition to the asking for and wanting to do favors, we saw Paul continuing to trust God in how he defends himself and how he defends the gospel. And we saw last week that he appeals to Caesar. Huh. Paul must not be trusting God. He's appealing to the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. He's appealing to the emperor, which was the right of every Roman citizen. Wait a minute. Paul is a citizen of heaven. Yes, he writes that, of course, in his letters. But he also knows he's a citizen here on earth. And he's taking proper and right advantage to that. In fact, trusting God for Paul meant, in this case, appealing to the human governing authorities. One commentator, in looking at this and other um, aspects of what Luke is doing, says Luke is weaving a theme here. Quote, genuine Christian faith, although it recognizes that only God has ultimate authority, is submissive to the governments that God has established for society's peace and order, even when those who govern stray from their God-given mission. And we see it in how the authorities have acted with cruelty, with cowardice, not releasing an innocent man. But nonetheless, Paul is, as it were, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Today, or this season, late May, early June, is the season of graduations, right? And all of us are probably familiar with the the music, the, the, the hymn, as it were, Pomp and Circumstance, written by Edward Elgar, an English composer back in 1901. He did it for the coronation of a king, King Edward VII of England. And yet four years later, Edward Elgar was in Yale University receiving an honorary doctorate, and the, the, the orchestra there at Yale played pomp and circumstance, not as a processional, but as a recessional after the composer got his honorary doctorate. Pomp and circumstance, where does that come from? Of course, it's uh, a line in Shakespeare's Othello. Pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war. And he pulls the title for his musical composition from that. Now, pomp. Pomp, we heard it in our Old Testament reading, we're going to hear it in our text, and, and Rob mentioned, if anybody deserves the glorious pomp, it's, it's that, one, that, that the King of King and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, but, but we're all familiar with pomp here on earth, splendid display or celebration, a magnificent show or ceremony, especially at a public event, and a graduation, whether it's high school, college, graduate school, it is indeed a, a magnificent occasion. It's a celebration. 
There's a solemnity to it and there's a joy to it and there is pomp involved. But there's, of course, a negative view of pomp. It's it's in the form of the adjective pompous. Affectedly and irritatingly grand, solemn, or self-important. Pomp. When we will hear in a moment that word in verse, I believe, 23, pomp. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. In all of the translations I could find, this one Greek word is translated pomp. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Remember last week, for those of you that were here, we opened with the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. And we made, um, I made emphasis on the fact that solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion children's know. But you know what precedes that? Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Then comes solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. You see, for a Christian, all that the world offers, apart from God, will grow dim. And all that God offers through faith in Jesus Christ grows brighter day by day. Today, we're going to see a magnificent show by the king and the governor versus the life-transforming reality that we see in the prisoner, Paul. The magnificent show versus the life-transforming reality. In a word, you could say this is external versus internal, outward versus inward, what's on the surface versus what's on the depths. I think for all of us, we have to ask ourselves, are, are, are we obeying God to be seen by others? Are we obeying God to be shown to be righteous? Are we or obeying God through a transformed heart, an inward obedience that really doesn't care that it gets acclaim, that really doesn't care if it gets applause? We're going to see that in this magnificent show versus a life-transforming reality. Well, today's text is the narrative account of the prelude to Paul's longest and most detailed defense of the gospel. I cannot wait for the next few weeks because we are going to see Paul defend the gospel at length and in detail. And in this, we'll see in this prelude that Luke includes the spoken words of the Roman governor and the last and the spoken words of the last of the Jewish kings of the Herodian dynasty. And yet he includes none of Paul's words. That'll have to wait to the next chapter. And yet at the very center of our text, not only in literal position, but of central importance are the words of Paul. Paul, remember, is a spokesman for Jesus Christ. We're going to open up and explore today's text by considering... How the governor and king talk not to Paul, but rather about Paul in both a private conversation and in a public hearing. 
and then we'll reflect a bit on personal decisions that have to be made. So we're going to look first at a private conversation, secondly at a public hearing, and then third and finally at personal decisions. So let me read verses 13 through 22, a private conversation. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met with the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Here they are in a private conversation talking about Paul in his absence. It's kind of informal. And who's there? Agrippa. Agrippa the king along with his sister or half-sister Bernice. Agrippa is the last of the kings in the Herodian dynasty, a powerful royal family who, though professing biblical faith, had lived lives of violence and corruption for generations. In that, they looked more not to people who ruled according to God's ways, but people who ruled according to the ways of the world. This king, Herod Agrippa II, was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And what's Herod the Great known for? Trying to kill the infant Jesus. He killed an awful lot of infants in an attempt to eliminate the one who was born to be king of the Jews. He's a relative of Herod Antipas who did what? Who killed John the Baptist. He's the son of Herod Agrippa that we read about in Acts 12. He killed James, he arrested Peter, and he died under God's judgment. He and his sister Bernice come to Caesarea to pay their respects to the new Roman governor. And the new Roman governor, Festus, uh, provides him with a summary of the case against Paul. And there's two major players, both the Jewish case against Paul and the Roman case against Paul. The Jewish leadership, Festus says, asked for a sentence of condemnation. But Festus knows that the Roman civil authorities have to ensure that Paul gets a proper legal process. And so he's accurately reflecting what's happening. The Jews want to condemn Paul 
And the Romans want Paul to be afforded of the proper process. And in this informal conversation, in this talk about Paul, not in Paul's presence, he tells the king this. He believes that there is no basis for a charge. He believes that this is an internal religious dispute. He believes that it has to do with this certain Jesus who was dead, but who Paul asserted to be alive. And he believes that since Paul has appealed to Caesar, he has to send him to the emperor. Did you hear that? He believes that this dispute has something to do with a certain Jesus who was dead but is now claimed to be alive. Here in the middle is the resurrection. And even though Paul is not speaking directly, Festus captures well Paul's words on the centrality of the resurrection. You see, Paul is fulfilling his calling to bear witness to what he has seen and heard. Turn with me back to Acts 22. Acts 22. Remember, he's before the people making his defense and beginning in verse 14. He's recounting um, his conversion and he says, And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everything of what you have seen and heard. What did Paul hear on the road to Damascus? He heard the words of the risen Christ. Who did, what did Paul see on the road to Damascus? He saw the risen Christ. Paul is fulfilling his calling to witness what he has seen and heard. So after the, the um, uh, governor presents his views, the, the king's curiosity is awakened. He says, I would like to hear the man himself. I would like to hear the man himself. Um, this Herod, this Aunt Agrippa, is part of that Herodian dynasty. And if you have to think back to Herod Antipas, who's perplexed, about Jesus. We read in Luke 9, he, Jesus is a mystery and he's perplexed. He wants to know, he wants to learn about him. And then in Luke 23, beginning in verse 8, G, uh, Jesus is before Pilate, Jesus is before Herod. And we read in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So just as Paul is following in the steps of Jesus, uh, this king of the Jews, this man Agrippa, is following in his family's line. He's curious. He wants to know. And we'll see next week what Paul has to say. So here is Paul being talked about behind his back. He's not there. How do you guys respond when people talk behind your back? You know, Paul here has got to be encouraged, right? They're accurately capturing 
What's the problem with Paul? It's about Jesus. You know, we cannot control what other people think about us, whether fellow believers or unbelieving world. But may, may they, when they talk about us behind our back, may much of their conversation be about how we love Jesus, how we trust Jesus. They're talking about Paul, and that's what they know about him. So the discussion about Paul is now going to move from the context of being held in a private conversation, somewhat informally, to being held in the context of a public hearing. Here now we'll see the king and the governor talking about Paul in his presence, a bit more formal scene. Join with me as I pick up in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared to the emperor, excuse me, As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Here's the scene in the audience hall, great pomp, a pageant, lavish ceremonial parade, pomp, an outward display. The king, Agrippa, is most likely wearing purple robes of royalty, and Festus, the Roman governor, is most likely wearing a scarlet robe that he would wear for a state visit. You've got military tribunes, each of the five with a thousand under their command, prominent men of the city gathered. What an audience for the proclamation of the gospel. You see, the gospel is that message not just for the poor, but for the rich, not just for the, uh, the um, unknown people, but the known people. The gospel that Paul is proclaiming is for all people. And here is being assembled Roman governors, Jewish kings, um, prominent men of the city, military leaders. Who would have thought that a prisoner like Paul would be the instrument that God would gather such an audience to hear the gospel? So here's a purple robe and a scarlet robe. And in comes Paul. Paul is coming in wearing neither crown nor gown, but chains and a prisoner's tunic. The next time we're here, we will see him, and not the king and not the governor, come to dominate the scene with Christ-like dignity and confidence. So in this public hearing, the governor concludes this, and we saw it in verse 25. I have found 
that he had done nothing deserving death. You see, the Jews didn't just ask for, just didn't charge him with misdemeanors. The Jews charged him with felonies. They are saying this man deserves death, and the governor concludes he's done nothing deserving death. Earlier, Felix, the governor, was, was known as a cruel man, and here Festus is showing himself to be a cowardly man. You see, Festus is lacking courage to pronounce innocence. Like Jesus, Paul will be declared innocent three times in his trial. But the three opportunities that were available for his exoneration were not taken. So the governor is caught in a dilemma. In a word, he says this, I need help writing my report. Kids, we've all had to write papers in school, right? Do you find papers easy to write, hard to write, hard to get started? Festus is saying, I don't know what to say. Hey, Agrippa, can you help me? I need something to write so that I don't look like a fool when I send this prisoner to Rome to the emperor with no real charge, except there's some kind of dispute among the religion of the Jews and the religion of the followers of this certain Jesus. He's caught between the rock of Roman rites and the hard place of Jewish hostility toward Paul. And he knows that Agrippa, as we will see next time, being well informed of the Jewish religion and what's going on, his opinion concerning Paul's case would carry weight. It would be well informed and persuasive to the emperor. So here, Paul is being talked about to his face. He's entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. How about you? What's worse? People talking about you behind your back or people talking about you to your face? The good news for Paul is it's centered not about Paul's strictness as a Pharisee, Paul's um, desire to be shown righteous in and of himself. No, what they were talking about was Paul and this certain Jesus who had died, but who was alive. So my friends, whenever people are talking about us behind our back or to our face, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So in both the private conversation and the public hearing, decisions are being made. Not so much decisions as to what to do, but rather decisions first and foremost about what to believe. Because what we do follows, of course, what we believe. Now it's been said that life is a series of decisions that need to be made. All of us made decisions. What time to get up, what to wear, what to eat, what to say. We're always making decisions. And here behind every prominent pronouncement is a private belief, a personal decision of whether or not something is true. And here we see the governor delaying or avoiding a decision about Paul. He is afraid 
to declare that he is innocent. That's what he believes, right? But he's afraid to publicly declare it. You know, because Festus is delaying or avoiding a decision about Paul, uh, what he's doing in reality is he's delaying or avoiding a decision about Jesus. Why? Because Paul is a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is a spokesman for Jesus before kings and governors. So the governor's decision to avoid a decision or to delay the decision is really a decision about Jesus. Remember in Mark 8, the first question Jesus asked his disciples is, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And then after getting some answers, Jesus responds with this next question. But who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? Who do you believe I am? If you were able to read ahead and took a look at the John 11 passage that I referenced in the weekly email, it's the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. Listen to these words beginning in verse 23 of chapter 11 of John. Jesus said to her, that is Martha, your brother will rise again. So what's at the center of this story? The resurrection. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha has to make a decision about who Jesus is. And we know she confesses who Jesus is. So we've seen the private conversation. We've seen the public hearing. As we wrap up, let's circle back to Romans 15 and a musical composition. So what is Paul's source of endurance and encouragement? He was in jail, what, for two years, waiting, passed off to the next government? How do you have hope? Who of us would have endured who of us would have been encouraged in a time like that, feeling abandoned? What's the source of his endurance and encouragement? The hope of the resurrection. When he's falsely accused and he's standing trial for what he has not done, when people are talking behind his back and people are talking to his face, what is Paul's source of endurance and encouragement? It's the resurrection. You know, Festus' passing comment about the dispute about Jesus being dead but now alive, it's at the center of our text. It's at the center of gravity of the Christian's life. We heard in, earlier in our New Testament reading, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you still are in your sin. 
If Jesus has been raised from the dead, it changes everything. And then finally, this scene, this scene where personal decisions have to be made is a scene of the pomp of the world versus the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when Agrippa and Bernice show up with great pomp, it's a proud and showy display of who I am and what I've done. And when Paul shows up and is brought in, it's a display of who God is and what he has done. Because the resurrection is a powerful display of who God is and what he has done. Fading is the worldling's pleasure All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion, Zion's children. No, my friends, who are Zion's children? Christians. And who are Christians? Children of God, who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. Even though that's in John's gospel, chapter one, of course, it's what Paul believes as well. Here in this audience hall, And further in trials and the journey to uh, Rome, Paul, we will see, was willing to lose all things so that he may know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. The question's got to be asked, I've got to ask myself, am I willing to lose all things? Am I willing to let go of earthly pomp an outward show and display? Am I willing, are you willing to lose all things in order to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? Maybe, maybe it's because we're not willing to lose, that we don't know Christ fully. Maybe it's because we're not willing to lose. We don't know the power of the resurrection. Paul's calling, remember, was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And his great desire is in doing so, of course, was to know the risen Christ and to live with the power and hope of the resurrection. My friends, as we conclude, who are you seeking to know? And how are you seeking to live You see, personal decisions can't be put off forever. They have to be made. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, it takes a while for us to know the significance of a narrative account of the Apostle Paul before a Roman governor and a Jewish king. But, oh, Father, we trust you and we we acknowledge that this is in your word for our endurance, for our encouragement. And so, Father, help us to see that, indeed, the world's pomp 
and pleasures are fading. But the pomp of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is increasing more and more each day. Oh, Father, help us to rest in him and in the trials and difficulties of life here in a fallen and sinful world. Help us to all entrust ourselves to you, the one who judges justly. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.